Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Móvil Order and Pay en McDonald's participantes se requiere la descarga y registro. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It In Contagious, the podcast that we have on the intersection between baseball, social justice, and politics. My name is Tova Wang. My day job is a democracy fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. And today is really special because we have a very special guest with us, Howard Bryant, who I'm going to let my colleague Frank introduce properly. But I will just say that I think originally we had in our heads to have a conversation about Jackie Robinson Day and, and how that's all very nice and well, but is a little performative at this point and allows them to just then move on from the subject. And then we've had in the last few days at the time of recording, uh, MLB pulling the All-Star Game out of Atlanta or the suburbs of Atlanta, I should say, um, because of the voting rights law in Georgia. So we have a lot to talk about. I'm going to turn it over to Frank Garidi now to uh, introduce Howard. Yes, thank you, Tova. So, of course, everybody knows Howard Bryant is a senior writer for ESPN. He's a historian. He's a cultural critic, author of nine books, including The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and The Politics of Patriotism, The Last Hero, A Life of Henry Aaron, which we talked about in this podcast before, Shut Out, The, the Great History of Race and, and Baseball with the Boston Red Sox, and, of course, most recently, his book, Full Dissidents, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. Howard, we're really happy to have you here today. How are you? This is, it's Frank Week. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Because we are we are doing the San Antonio Book Fest tomorrow from Massachusetts, right? Um, from New York. <laughs> from New York, exactly. But um, no, thanks you have. Thanks for having me. This is this is a good group, and um, looking forward to it. It's good stuff. So it's always Frank Week on Say It Ain't Continue. Oh please. Oh, okay, it, it's all of our weeks, but it, let's get right to it. So uh, as Tova said, we really wanted to get your your comments on. I mean, you've written about the, uh, Major League Baseball's decision to pull the All-Star game from Atlanta. You wrote a couple of days ago in a piece on ESPN.com, quote, it's the latest example of a league mitigating damage to its image through such a framework. It just so happened that damage control and doing the right thing in this instance happened to be one and the same. So what did you mean by that statement? Well, what I meant by it, actually, when I, when I thought about it, it was I, I really was concerned at first whether or not this moving the game was going to be essentially pinned on black people. That was my big thing. It was sort of like uh, immediately when it got moved, I had people calling me going, Oh, Stacey Abrams wins again. I'm like, huh? And then it was like, Oh, well, you know, you know, you know, they're, they're afraid of, um, you know, uh, Val Sharpton. I'm like, did anybody mention Al Sharpton? And so it's like, when all of these things started happening, I, I was like, I was thinking, just yesterday, Rob Manfred was on the network. He was on ESPN saying that everything, all systems were go. So, and also knowing what we know about baseball and knowing what we know about the Players Alliance and knowing of how, how baseball has been on the sidelines really post-Ferguson, post-Trayvon Martin, post all of this. They've, you know, we all know this couldn't have been player-driven. 
Baseball doesn't have the numbers to be player driven. This is not an 80% black league. There's no Mookie Betts didn't walk out there and say, we're not playing. Everybody come behind me and, you know, who, you know, who's with me. It's not like that. So it was important to me to sort of find out what was driving this and, and, and really what did drive it from everyone that I had spoken with was that there was a bit of, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on there in that the Georgia business class and baseball's sponsors, nobody said anything in the run-up to this bill. No one said a, a word about this. They let it pass. And then once it passed, it was like, oh, we don't want to be associated with this. And so for me, what I started to think about was, okay, this was something that aligned with what Major League Baseball wanted to get away from. This is kryptonite. And, and, and to me, I always viewed this as a continuum, that what we're really talking about here is it goes back to the November election, it goes back to January 6th, it goes back to the runoff, and now it goes into SB202, that this is not something that Major League Baseball really wants to be associated with. So can I just jump in? It's Tova again. That, um, so is it your sense that this is actually not particularly a sign of progress in terms of our hope, I suppose, that uh, baseball will stay engaged to the extent that it got engaged in social justice and racial justice issues last year? Or is it, you know, I'm, my concern is that sports in general, they're going to be like, oh, so, you know, that was 2020. Now back to regular business. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's, I think it's it's not a sign of progress when we're talking about justice. Only if you believe that justice has to be served for the right reasons. To me, justice just has to be served. Right? That's it. Like when we go back and we think about Jackie Robinson and we think about all of these different motivations for integration, it's like, okay, Grant Tricky wanted to make some more money at the gate. Okay, that's fine. Whatever the reason is, okay, the Milwaukee Braves wanted to move to Atlanta. And if a concession to that was not having segregated seating, so be it. So I think that it's important for me, at least, just to remember that however it gets done, it gets done. And I think that if baseball now recognizes, look, we can't ride with this because we look terrible. Okay, that's fine. I mean, I, don't, I, I am not of the mind that I need sports to be my social beacon. I don't need sports to be the moral arbiter of the life that I live. I mean, we used to go back and forth with this all the time with the NFL and domestic violence and concussions and all that stuff back in the, in the 2000s, where we were talking about, well, Ray Rice did what he did and you know, Tyreek Hill did what he did or whatever. And it's like, well, where's Roger Goodell on this? I'm like, why are you waiting for Roger Goodell to be the person to guide you in the right direction? So to me, to answer the question, I sort of feel like if it so turns out, that now baseball is going to think about how it looks when they get involved in these things. Even if it's like, we look terrible, we can't do this. That's progress, that, that matters. It tells you that at the very least that they're taking other people's feelings into account. And, and the reason why I don't go so overboard and talk about how this was such a great success is because they pulled the Braves out of Atlanta in the first place. They don't even play in Atlanta. And the racial implications of that you know, they, they coincide with what's taking place now. So I think that you have to take all of these different pieces individually, sort of compartmentalize them and realize that even if this was a victory without a victory, it was still a victory, right? It's still at the end of the day, the right thing was done. Just to talk a little bit about Atlanta and its uh, particular history in baseball, Henry Aaron passed away recently. And 
you know, what role do you think that played in the mindset of those major league executives, the possibility of celebrating Aaron in Atlanta with that law in place? Yeah, it's, it's the whole thing. It's the continuum. I think that if you if you're a baseball and you're going to make a business call, are you more apt? Is it the smarter business call to take the short term criticism or to have the long term hypocrisy of saying, look, last year, George Floyd is killed and Jacob Blake is killed and baseball promised to be better. They promised that they were going to be less on the outside of, of these issues, even though they're even though their numbers are seven and a half percent in terms of black uh, participation. And we always talk about how baseball deep down is a, it really is a white suburban game reinforced by foreign labor. That's really what the sport is. It's what it's become. And so the Latino players, even though baseball is a very dark sport, you're not, the, the, the players themselves don't necessarily feel invested. The Latino players aren't necessarily invested with American politics. It's not their country. They don't necessarily view it that way. And so you've got that. Then at the same time, you've got the Players Alliance doing what they did last July when the game reopened. And then on top of that, you've got baseball wanting a pat on the back for incorporating the Negro League statistics into the historical record. So you do all these things. And then you've got Henry Aaron as well. And the All-Star game is in his state. And this passes and you're going to ignore all of that? You just couldn't do it. I think that if you're Rob Manfred, I mean, this, this is documentary stuff. This is the stuff where 10, 20 years from now, they're doing actual stories about how this is, this is how baseball handled, this is how baseball reacted to, to an insurrection and to the momentum of the big lie. And I just think that somebody had to go to Rob and say, this is a no brainer, dude, we can't do this. We just cannot do this. People are gonna be talking about this for years. That's especially true given that the whole three months they lead up to the All-Star game, it's all about vote, vote for <laughs> vote for this guy, vote for that guy. How do you have an election-themed All-Star game, which is all exactly. Major League Baseball uses to market when, when this is going on? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you, you're just going to get demolished. I mean, I just didn't see, I mean, the in fact, you know, to Toba's point, I think that if you stayed and played the game in Atlanta, in, in Georgia, it's an even more dangerous proposition for you. Not because you look terrible, but if you were really down with this cause, then what you really do is you play the game in Georgia, in Cobb County, and you say that we're staying here because we don't want the Uber drivers and the hotels and the small businesses and the bars to pay the price on this. And we're gonna use our PAC money to get these people out of office. We're, gonna, we're going to be part of this. We're going to actually really be part of an anti-voter suppression movement. I mean, that's way more dangerous for Major League Baseball than to just pull the game. So baseball gets to pull the game, but they don't necessarily have to invest any more of their values into what's taking place in terms of voter suppression because the optics of moving the game does all of that for them. If they had actually kept the game in Georgia, then they may actually have to really invest and people are gonna say, well, what about it? We want you to actually use your resources. Notice that Major League Baseball never said, we want the law repealed. We're going we're gonna to do what we need to do to get this law off the books because we don't want one of our franchises operating in a state that does this. They didn't do that. They pulled the game. They could fund the litigation. You know, they should be funding the litigation. Note how they didn't say that about all the other states where they have teams and where laws like this are being passed. Right? Absolutely. This is Georgia's high profile at this moment. I was struck by Mitch McConnell's, I thought, surreal but important <laughs> words about corporate America because he meant what he was saying. Yeah, absolutely. And 
And he talked about these woke CEOs, which is kind of a funny image. And McConnell's not ordinarily a, a particularly funny guy. But, <laughs> but what struck me is this kind of suggests or, or underscores how, you know, corporate America, which is operating, whether it's Delta Airlines, Coca-Cola, or Major League Baseball, operating with an eye towards the bottom line, an eye towards not, 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 not pissing, off as, pissing off as few people as possible, pardon my French. And I wonder whether this, you know, does this tell us just how, because Major League Baseball is a good barometer. And if they're seeing this as beyond the pale, as a step too far, what do you think that tells us, I mean, about, about the kind of society more broadly and how out of step, in some sense, it's a hopeful note that even baseball thinks this is too far. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, and I'm not sure, I mean, because I still believe as well that this was one of the moments where it turned into a victory. But what we're really talking about is the power of the corporate class. And if you really want to have that conversation, then I don't know if this was a victory at all, because I make, I think about Colin Kaepernick. I think about this. There was another example five years ago when the corporate class realized that their values had to, well, that good American values of protest had to be sacrificed. He was too toxic, even though he didn't do anything wrong. And so in that regard, that was an example where doing the right thing was unpopular in the corporate class and the NFL and the rest of them. They all ran for cover. So that's when I start to look at it, I sort of take that long view of there are going to be examples where it benefits them that work in the favor of social justice. And then there are going to be examples where it doesn't benefit them. And then they abandon whatever values we think should be American values. That's the thing that's interesting is that some of the reporting, I was just on a radio program about this yesterday, that you know, they've converted the story or the reporting as corporate activism. That's right. And one and of that's the things hilarious. that I, <laughs> I said, is this is a reaction to the grassroots activism of last year and, and of the, the efforts to reinvigorate democracy. This is not corporate activism. Yeah, it's, it's corporate opportunism. It worked in their, in, in their favor in this instance. And it's and, corporate and, calculations. And I, exactly. And I do think it's sort of hilarious that people would look at Major League Baseball and consider it to be woke. Are we really talking about Major League Baseball? They're all Republicans. I mean, everybody, and 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 especially because the the players' alliance, the the black players, the white players, the Latino players, everybody who's part of the player alliance, they signal to the union: if the game is being played in Georgia, we're playing, and if the game is moved, we're playing. So they didn't even get the sort of LeBron, Naomi Osaka type of pressure that you got last year. They were going to play the game. It wasn't like the Milwaukee Bucks walking off the court. So it, it's a totally different dynamic than what we've seen in the other sports and, and, and what we saw last year, which is one of the reasons why it was important to me to say, let's pull back and call this for what it is. What this really is, this is a reaction to Donald Trump. This is a continuation of the Trump narrative. This is not a continuation of more than a vote or more than a vaccine or more than a whatever, right? It's, it's, not, it's really not that. If it were player driven, that would be a really interesting and even more important story because it would say that the traditionally conservative locker rooms or clubhouses in Major League Baseball are actually willing to take, a, take it a step further. And, and, and 100% to that point that there is an attitude in Major League Baseball and across all the sports that 2020 was its own unique year and the activism that came with that was its own unique thing and let's not think that this is actually part of the new template because it isn't. So then how do you try to build on what happened last year? How do you keep the pressure on sports in general and baseball in particular for, for the purposes of this podcast to continue to 
live up to their promises of last year and not make it a one-off. Uh, what are the, are there any points of leverage for doing that? Well, I think you have to stay on everybody. I think that you stay on the players. And I think that one of the things, one of the points that I was trying to make last year was after Jacob Blake was shot. And I think the Milwaukee legislature had said that you could, that they were, that they were going to be able to use the, um, the, the Milwaukee sports stadiums. I think it was the Bucks and the Brewers, that those stadiums could be used as polling places. And then they reneged on that. And this was, and I remember saying, this is going to be an example where we find out just how committed the athletes are to this because so many of those guys think they can use that concierge service of being a millionaire and making a phone call to a DA and then getting the photo op and then having that be justice. And they found out that the, that, that this isn't what's going to happen, that if you're going to be in on this, you have to be in all the way. And so it's going to be really interesting to me to see if the players, and that includes the Atlanta dream, that includes everything you knew a backlash was coming. So everybody's talking about Renee Montgomery now being part owner, and we're talking about getting rid of Kelly Leffler and all of that. And now look at this law coming through. And so this thing gets passed while everybody's celebrating this. And so it's sort of from a civil rights history standpoint, you always know a backlash is coming. Are we going to spend more time celebrating the small victory or staying involved in fighting the backlash? And so I think what, you know, to answer the, the question, I think that what you have to do is you stay on everybody. It's what Harry Edwards says. There are no final victories. You just stay on, you stay on the players. You stay on Rob Manfred. I mean, we saw that Rob Manfred is going to react if you stay on him. His corporate sponsors are going to stay on it because these guys know that they don't want to be associated with something that is going to have a lasting haunting effect. Now, the NFL, maybe they just don't care and they say, come get us. But pressure pressure matters. You know, you're talking about things that Major League Baseball has done, which included, as you mentioned earlier, recognizing the Negro Leagues as Major League. And the question I have is, so what's next? Like, so you recognize them as Major League, what is Major League Baseball doing to help the the cause of Negro Leaguers in that uh, history? Well, that was one of the reasons why I didn't like it. And I'm as I am, I have been, I mean, you all are historians on this. And so you, you know, we all have our feelings about what to do with the future and what to do with the future and what to do with the past. I've never been sure that I was a fan of taking down monuments and doing all this stuff. Cause I don't think you can scrub the history. The history, the history is what it is and it needs to be, you know, it needs to be preserved in some ways. I'm not, I don't know how I feel about how to always get there, but this thing, I didn't like it at all because I remember saying that 25 years from now or 50 years from now, whatever, some historian or some 28-year-old researcher is going to go back and look at this stuff. And they're going to say, well, if this was major league and that was major league, then why weren't they playing in the same league? And it's all going to just get totally distorted. And, and so I didn't love that. And, and also that, that I didn't like the fact that baseball seemed to feel that it didn't have to carry its own weight. I mean, if Josh Gibson and Cool and Satchel Page and those guys all had to carry the weight and Buck O'Neill had to carry the weight of not being allowed to play, then you got to carry what you did to them. You can't just fix that with a pen stroke. And I had real problems with that. And so, and on top of that, you're not giving any money to their families and you're not retroactively making their pensions full-time. You know, you know you're not giving them their 10 years. Right. Because clearly 
you know, when you look at the, I mean, there's money at the bottom of this. If you look at you know, what, I think it's 10 years, once you get your 10 years in, you get a full pension. It's $240,000 a year. I think you know, some descendant of Josh Gibson's family could use that money. Or, you know, so you did this to fix yourselves. You didn't do it to fix anybody else. So I had, I had real problems with that. And, and to the question of what's next, that's a great question. What is next? What do, you, what do you do with this? And I think what's really important to remember here is to always look at this in the, you know, within the framework of what is the end game here for baseball? Major League Baseball is on a massive assault right now to brand the game of baseball and to own the word baseball, right? They don't make a distinction between Little League Baseball, between Pony League Baseball, between Negro League Baseball and Major League Baseball. They wanna own it all. They want it all under their umbrella. And, and I feel bad at some level for Bob Kendrick and some of the guys over there because everybody knows without MLB's money, the Negro League Museum probably doesn't survive. So you've gotta make some of these economic calculations Major League Baseball could have done a lot of things. They could have said, look, we are going to fund the Negro League Museum in perpetuity. As long as there's a Major League Baseball, there's gonna be a Negro League Museum. We're gonna do all of these different things to preserve that history. They didn't have to mess with the numbers. You know, because to me, messing with the numbers is also the reason why those numbers should exist separately is to preserve that time. You can't just tell me that, you know, anyone that does any sort of scholarship on the Negro Leagues knows it wasn't a side-by-side -side separate and equal thing. The reason why those records are a mess is because nobody cared. There were no resources. And, and, and though that, all of that stuff, I thought baseball did a real disservice and the biggest disservice to Toba's point, which is the real problem, was the fact that numerous Major League Baseball people told me that this was a reaction to the remarkable events of 2020 and we probably wouldn't have done this in any other year. I said, well, if you're reacting to it simply on a one-off, why are you messing with the history? Then this is, this is totally gratuitous. If you wouldn't do this in 2021 or 2019, you shouldn't do it at all. But the advantage of them doing it is now they don't have to talk about it anymore, right? Well, that's right. And for now. For now. Mm -hmm. for now. Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. Any moment that lets you just sit back, relax, and enjoy even one second of the day to yourself and taste like pumpkins, that's a moment to look forward to. The McCafe Pumpkin Spice Latte is back. Get a $2 small hotter iced for a limited time or try one of our other freshly brewed espresso drinks from iced caramel macchiatos to caramel frappes to hot mochas to every sweet treat in between. Only at McDonald's. Price and participation may vary. you said they didn't really change the number. They didn't really do anything. 
no well, one they, is out there saying that these this home run record that Josh Gibson set in whatever year is the real home run record or this you know strikeouts per game that's out. No one's saying that. They just it's not even the cosmetic change yeah. that it suggests that it is. Well, not yet, not yet. Well, and then you start taking away and adding hits in the thing. And that was the other piece of that, right? You then you st- then you decide that your cutoff is going to be 1948 or 49. Well, the Negro Leagues played until 1961, right. so Hank Aaron's numbers aren't affected because Hank Aaron played in the Negro Leagues in '52 for a month or the five weeks he was there. And so Ernie Banks's numbers aren't necessarily affected because he played in the Negro Leagues early. I'm sorry, late rather, after this. So all of these different pieces, it's so arbitrary. It would have been better to leave it alone. You asked what's next and what's next on the calendar as we're recording this is Jackie Robinson Day. And uh, as Tova mentioned before, Major League Baseball has gotten, and I would agree, extremely performative with its Jackie Robinson commemorations. It's sort of their get out of racism free card over the years, it seems like. How do you think that's going to play now? Will it play differently this year? Are they going to do different things than their normal rote kind of stuff? Yeah, well, that has been the big question. I think the last time there was, I mean, all the years are rolling in together now, but I think it was 2019. We were in L.A. for Jackie Robinson Day, and I was with Rachel and Sharon and everybody at Dodger Stadium. And one of the points that I was trying to make without upsetting everybody because, you know, you don't always want to be the buzzkill, although it's kind of fun to be the buzzkill sometimes, right? Um, So in being the buzzkill is to say, well, look, you are you treating Jackie Robinson as a thing of the past? Do you really want Jackie Robinson in your present? Because Jackie Robinson was a pain in the ass. Jackie Robinson was actually doing all the things that you discourage right now in terms of player participation and in terms of protest, in terms of actually calling things out to make things better. So it seems to me that, that you've got a decision to make as an industry are you celebrating something that happened yesterday or are you celebrating something that you want to be part of your game? And so to me, it has always felt like baseball has celebrated Jackie Robinson as a historical marker, but not as something present for them. And so that's why it's been really interesting to see what this Players Alliance does and what the backlash was going to be because you knew that some of the players that were going to opt out during the pandemic, some of the players that were going to you know, if they were going to protest, take knee, demand, the whole thing. But once again, one of the points that I always try to make in, in business, in anything, is that the culture changes you before you change the culture, right? And so baseball players are conservative in general. And even those Black players, even when they were told last year it was okay to protest, they still didn't want to do it. So, and I'm not even saying doing anything really dramatic. I'm just saying they know the culture of that sport, whether we're talking about styling after a home run or whether we're talking about actually putting yourself out there for something important, is to not draw attention to yourself. We know that when you draw attention to yourself in baseball, somebody throws a fastball in your back. That's how the game polices itself. It has always policed itself that way. And so over time, we'll see, as of now, everything's sort of kumbaya. Right now, there hasn't been any sort of real retaliation for anybody that did anything last year. We'll see. It dawned on me as you're talking about Jackie Robinson. David Price sounds more like Jackie Robinson than most of the players. And look how the press often gets riled up by what David Price asked them back. You know, that's a Jackie Robinson type personality. They see him as abrasive and constantly 
calling them out. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to pick up on that and ask you, uh, do you think anything has changed inside the clubhouse after last year? Um, and what are those conversations like? And are there conversations? Because you would hope that they, there are. Well, that's a good question because we, we haven't been in there. Yeah. So it's going to be once again, what is post COVID baseball coverage look like? We all know that given if they had their own way, they'd be covering, we'd be covering sports like the movies. You cover the performance and you don't talk to anybody. Uh, that's what they really want. It'll be interesting to see how much we get back in there and what, and what that looks like. If I had to guess, and once again, you have to remember that I was, I was with, I was with Dusty last March and then we all got sent home and that was the last I think the last time I was in a clubhouse was I was in West Palm I think it was March 5th or 6th and that was it so I don't know what that new room is like I think we're starting to see a little bit of it though when you're hearing what the players are saying about vaccinations you have one team like the Yankees talking about yeah we're all in and then you have the Mets going yeah it's a personal decision just like LeBron and the rest of those guys and so I think that once again over the course of the next several weeks on a on the pandemic side we're going to see a lot of those same political splits because when you walk into that room there's no bigger click in sports than a baseball clubhouse i mean it's it's easy it's a little less than it was now because the black players there's so few of them but you used to walk into a room you had your black players over there especially the dodgers dodgers in the mid 90s you had the dodge you had the black players over here you had the Japanese players with Nomo and those guys over there. You had the Korean players over there, the Chan Ho Park and those guys. Then you had the, the redneck group over there, you know, the, all the guys who walk in and camo, you know, with camo under their shirts and everything. And then on the other side, you had a couple of guys like the, you know, the chameleons, like the Kevin Millars of the world or the Sean Dunstans who could sort of play within all the high school cliques. But um, I tend to think... I tend to think that there's going to be a certain market correction over the next couple of years. I wonder where it's going to come from. Is it going to come from the pandemic like we saw in Texas with 40,000 fans <laughs> acting like it's 1998 or, um, you know, or is it going to come from something that happens racially? I tend to think it's going to be less racial because you just don't have the raw numbers and the, the number of people in baseball who, when you start looking and you go, okay, who's the guy, right? Who's going to be the person? I mean, it may be a gender thing. It may be that the backlash is going to come from the fact that baseball is hiring more women than black people these days. You know, you got Bianca Smith over, you've got Kim Ang, you've got, maybe that's where the backlash is going to come from. But somewhere along the line, I think you're going to see, you're either going to see some form of correction or you're going to see the very people that are in the sport that we are trumpeting as pioneers right now, adopting the baseball culture themselves. I was wondering, you know, this is a self-serving historical question, but you know, you're a historian, so I'm going to ask anyway. You know, so MLB's reputation, or sorry, Major League, I saw your tweet today, baseball, Major League Baseball's reputation is this pioneering sports league on race, right? You know, that's a long part of its mythology still is. And yet, so, and we've talked a lot about management and the transformation of management in Major League Baseball history. You know, mm -hmm. but my memories of, you know, of players back in the day, they were much more socially aware, right? And so is it, and, and so how did that change among major league rosters? Is it simply that we have less African-American players? I mean, and I guess that could be the short answer, 
or is there something else about the methods of labor recruitment? Uh, is it that the sport became more suburban? You know, how, how do we account for that shift? Or maybe that shift really didn't happen. That's just something I've imagined. No, it's all the above. I mean, whenever I go into a project, I always need to tell myself race, class, and gender cannot be separated. All three of these things have to be, they have to be addressed, even if you conclude that it's not primary, but you have to address them. You gotta say, okay, where does this fit? And the biggest thing is the money. The players don't go to public, their kids don't go to public schools anymore. They're not invested in any of this. They're not in, most of them aren't even in town long enough to have any sort of connection to the community. And when they do, they're so rich, they're not even involved in the community. They're, they're, they write checks. That's the, you know, that's the extent of their, of their involvement with the community. And so that's why it's so special when you have a guy like an Adam Jones or where you have a guy like, um, Tory Hunter or somebody who's like invested in the community and there or Michael Young down in Texas where they're paying attention and they're part of it. That's why it's so rare. I remember, you know, when when I was working on Shutout, that was one of the big things that really jumped out at me was the number of players whose kids were in the public school system. That's why they were paying attention to busing. Their kids were actually part of it. They didn't go to school in the city, but they were going to school in the suburbs. And with the Metco program and everything else in Boston, they were paying attention to what the public school system was starting to look like there. And today that's not a concern at all. And so the money has absolutely enveloped um, the, the sort of old ideas that when you came into a town, you were going to buy a house, you were going to be aware of what was taking place, all of those things. It's just, I mean, $350 million contracts change your priorities. I think it also has to do with the, you know, the dramatically different role baseball plays in the culture today yeah. in general compared yeah. to 30, 50, 70 years ago, even though there's more money in the game. To some extent, you know, what we've seen the, the kind of limited activism and statements by baseball players would have had a much greater effect 40 years ago when more people were, were paying attention. So, so that, that cultural role of, of the game is part of this puzzle too. You're not that important anymore. Yeah. It used to be the sport. You, and I think that's what's been really fascinating is that in baseball, this was the game you had to deal with baseball, even if you chose that you weren't going to play it. In the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, baseball was so popular, you had to choose not to play it. People would ask you, well, why'd you choose football? Why did you, you know, baseball was still a very powerful game in terms of the athletic choice that you were going to make. If you were going to choose athletics for your career, I'm working on a book on Ricky Henderson right now. And what's been fascinating about working on that book is all the players, I mean, especially in Oakland, because that place is like fantasy land when it comes to talent, is they had to make a choice between were they going to go NBA, were they going to go NFL, were they going to go Major League Baseball? And baseball won in so many of those, in, you know, in so many of those instances. Baseball loses in virtually all of them now. You look at a guy, guy like Kyler Murray, you look at Russell Wilson, you look at Jameis Winston. They all played baseball. They played baseball at the college level. And baseball had no chance to get them. And so... It's, you know, I think when you're 100% right, they, the game just doesn't, it, the, the place of the sport is, in, is nowhere near as urgent. And, and on top of that, when you, you look at baseball and you think about where the game is, the number one question people ask about baseball is who's your star? You know, who, who do we follow? Who's, who is the baseball version of LeBron or Brett Favre or Tom Brady or James Harden or any of them? It's not even close. It, it just doesn't matter that way. And so, and part of that is 
the fact that baseball made a conscious decision to sell its game through numbers. I mean, baseball is an analytics game. I mean, not that the other sports don't use numbers, but baseball has decided to use its numbers of the game's identity. Very different than just using stats to determine who you're going to, you know, who you're going to sign. Baseball, you know, you walk on a, I was watching the game today and somebody was, I was on Twitter, I think, and, and they were talking about the, the top five pitchers who's, who have produced ground balls of 14 feet or less in front, in front of the plate. I'm like, are you shitting me? I, I, don't, I don't care about Fantastic. this. I want that data. <laughs> I don't care about this. I'm like, interesting, yes, but I don't care about this. And so it's a very different um, as a marketing tool. And so I, I think that if that's how you sell your sport, it's going to be real, you know, which is the reason why the game is a, it's a GM's game now. And this is who, what we care about. Who do we care about? We care about the people who run the sport. We don't even care about the people who manage the game anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a GM's game. It's the front office, as John Holt said, uh, John Smoltz said, right? They're in the World Series last year. It's the Rays front office against the Dodgers front <laughs> office, right? Billy Bean versus, you know, Theo Epstein, et cetera. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, you know. I, mean, on, on I think Craig wants to say something on yes, this. Yes, yes. I think he does. He's muted. He can't be muted. <laughs> I, I'm just going to say that when, I mean, not that I'm going to say I'm an old man or anything, but I am. When I was a kid, we all wanted to be a center fielder for the Detroit Tigers. And now my kids, to the extent they even care about baseball, want to be like a general manager or president mm -hmm. of baseball operations. And it's just a very different, well, it's a very different approach. And, you well, know, I, I'm just as responsible for that movement as anybody else being involved in sabermetric writing and everything else for the last 20 years. So it's just a giant shift that has taken the game away from sort of an every person's game. When Bob yeah. Lurie was enshrined into the Bay Area Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, uh, Corey Bush introduced him and he said, there comes a time in every young Jewish boy's life when they realize they have a better chance of owning a baseball team than playing. <laughs> <on it." laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> Should we talk about coverage real quick? We had a conversation oh, yeah. beforehand, uh, before we started, Howard, about, uh, we were joking about that three of the five people who have color who, who care about baseball and cover it or write about it or in this podcast, which of course is not true. Uh, but, but we were wondering about, we had thoughts about how this works out in the, in the sport media, right? You've been covering the game for a long time. You've, saw, you've seen the shifts, right? You know, I remember your memorable piece about or your commentary on the, on the sudden terrible passing of Pedro Gomez earlier this year, you know, and, and that, that, you know, that suggests to me, like, you know, this, you've seen the shift in the culture of those who cover the game. And given his, you know, his, his important place and certainly covering Latino players, right, and the game itself, you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts about where you see that going now. Yeah, I think it's way more a writing question than a baseball question, uh, but but obviously baseball's at the center of it. So in 2017, I was named the editor, the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writer, which is a, a, a nice thing to be asked to do. That's one of the, you know, it's, that doesn't exist anymore, but it was one of those publications that we all, all were really sort of interested in. So it was great. I mean, I was happy to be named so I'm looking at the selections and what am I gonna look at? What am I gonna choose? What are we gonna, you know, what are we gonna select? And I didn't really think I was that discerning, but it turns out there was something really chilling about what, what I've been reading about what the selections were. And I realized that every, without exception, I think it was 100%, every selection that had a person a writer interviewing a person 
actually interviewing them, spending time in their house, doing some sort of, you know, like the old school, you know, feature writing where you spend a couple of days with a person. One of my all time favorite pieces, you know, when Bob Gibson, Roger Angel went to Bob Gibson's house and spent three days with him. They were all either coaches or retired players. No active players. Every piece on an active player was a thought piece, was, but it wasn't, there were no quotes. You didn't actually, or it was in a scrum. It was just some locker room thing. And it made me think about access. It made me think about, we talk about covering the sport. We talk about what the game is going to be. And you realize that the old days are actually just that. They're the old days. You don't even walk in pregame. You don't even go into the manager's office pregame anymore. Everything's done by podium. If you want to learn the game of baseball, you have to be in the manager's office. Like when I learned the sport, Art Howe was the first manager that I covered on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, after the game, you walk in, you talk, he talks the game, the cameras are there. And when the cameras leave, all the pens went down and we closed the notebooks. And then he told you what was happening. And then you learn the sport. Lou Pinella, same thing. You walk into Lou's office. You take the hurricane if they lost, and if you survive the hurricane, then you could actually talk baseball with Lou. And so that was the sport. And so pregame, postgame is now podium. Everything you talk about is in, is in the scrum. When you talk to the players, the access to the players is getting smaller and smaller. And the, the relationship with baseball, the beauty of the sport, which is why when I covered football, it was such a difference. Baseball people want you to know the game. There's nothing better than at 3.30 in the afternoon, walking in the dugout, and seeing Ron Washington there drinking some coffee, smoking with a bag of Fritos and talking about last night's game. And that's the sport. And that's where you learn. And that part of it is slowly going away. And I think that the, I don't think it's going away necessarily because it has to. I think it's going away because the, this new generation of writers aren't necessarily being compensated to do this. Is it a full-time job anymore? Can you, you know, is it, or is it some sort of gig economy thing? And are you going to be in it long enough to really learn the sport? And on top of that, are you willing to not be afraid of the players and take the time that it takes to actually get to know them and to, to really learn, learn how to do the job and how to ask people questions and all of that stuff. But the relationship, baseball is the writer's sport, right? There's a reason why baseball and golf and horse racing are the writer's sports. And so at least from the old days and today there, if you can't write baseball, you're probably not a very good writer because the game is going slow enough that you can piece it all together. There's a human speed to it. And when that gets taken away, then the game is in real trouble. Si tú y tus amigos ordenan en McDonald's, deja que los demás agarren su comida primero. Yo sé, el solo pensar en el olor de las papitas y tener que esperar suena loco. Pero por reglas, si esperas, entonces las papitas que quedaron en el fondo de la bolsa son tuyas. Ordena por anticipado en el app y disfruta la recompensa de ser paciente. Para pa pa pa. Mobile order and pay in McDonald's participantes requiere la descarga y registro. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. Oh, <laughs> oh, 
if this wasn't covered before, uh, and I apologize for being tardy to class, but I just wanted to say that as we're talking about these, these subjects, that Shut Out is one of the best and most important baseball books that have come out in the last 20 years. And I was very gratified to see that Sabre placed it on its 50 at 50 list a few weeks ago. No, as not. Yeah, you are uh, among the 50 most important baseball books or your work is. And I, I was amused to, I, I think I saw this correctly on a hit you did, a video hit you did much like, like this one for ESPN. I saw Al Hirschberg's What's the Matter with the Red Sox on the shelf behind you because that, that was, yeah, that was a book. Yours was a, a, a kind of a, a, an update on that book that that came out roughly what, 74, 75. And oh, that book was 73. Seven, okay. Yeah. So he called them out yeah. for what it was. And somehow that just got missed and everybody just went, oh, okay. So they're racist. And it just, yeah. it went on. And yours was the one that really, made it impossible to to avoid that and i don't think yaki way gets renamed without your book no that's a, a kind thing to say and i was actually thinking that it's 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 good that you can say the last 20 years because you can only say it for one more year so um yeah you know I, I think that um and glenn stout's red sox century i think did a lot as well it's an outstanding book where yes. you really had a chance to uh i remember talking to john henry about this I was actually talking to Mo Vaughn about this two nights ago, that the, the timing of that book was by a hair. Because if you write, if that book comes out after 04 and they win, nobody cares. Yeah. I mean, the entire history and the culture of the Red Sox shifted in 04. It all, it, 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 people don't even, I'm thinking, I, mean, I was watching the game the other night and I'm looking at Kiki Hernandez. I'm like, you've got Nomar's number, right? <laughs> this is, you know, it's it's a totally different thing now and so um yeah i mean I, I i sort of feel like the the roots of the game you protect your own time right maybe maybe we're just doing that very thing that this this was the time period that was important to us therefore it's important and you know maybe it's less than that maybe what it really is is that there's a new history that replaces the old history and it's no different than our history i tend to think that's not true because I think that when you look at the economic underpinnings of it, something is very, very different. So it's sort of my feeling that where we are right now is, um, is critical for the sport because of that very thing we're talking about economically and also personality-wise. The game just doesn't have the same punch. It's just not the same, you know, and I'm, I, I love, I mean, at the, at the same time, I enjoy, I still love the sport, but I think the most, I think the way that I, last year's World Series, when Frank was talking about this, last year's World Series was exactly that to me. I remember sitting there and I was watching the game, I was watching game six, and I realized, oh, it was like a bucket of water on me. I'm like, why has this bothered me so much? Here's the reason. I don't give a shit about wins and losses. I watch competition. And if you're not gonna let Blake Snell compete, I'm not watching your sport. I wanna see Bob Gibson get nine innings. And if he can't get to that nine, I wanna see how far he can get. People talk about Louis, Louis Tiant threw 163 pitches in game four in the 75 World Series. And in game six, there's a game he lost, which was a famous game for the Red Sox, obviously. 
But when he left the mound in the eighth inning, he was done. They were done. The season was over. And if he'd pitched better, ovation. I mean, and 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 it may have cost them Game Seven, right? That their bullpen wasn't. I mean, you know, they're. Right. It's. But but, but the, I where I, I think the, the issue was also that I watch baseball not for the competition but for the story. Yeah. And Blake Snell is the protagonist of that snor- story. Yeah. Pardon me. And when you take him out, I also watch baseball to see the Dodgers not win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but my point on this is that I remember sitting there thinking. I also thought you'll never be a great player, Blake Snell, unless I see you have the opportunity to fail and the opportunity to succeed. If you take that away beforehand, where's your poetry? Where's your magic? Where's the stuff? I mean, am I watching this game to see 27 pitchers get 27 outs? No. I want to know if the best can beat the best when the shit's on the line. And if it's not that, and it's something else, then maybe this generation will watch something, you know, will watch it for what it is, but it doesn't excite me. And so once again, I'm not yelling at the clouds. I'm saying, this is different. You know, I mean, you watch an NBA game, they just chuck three pointers. Okay. That's fun to some people who like to see three pointers. It's just a different game. Just like in the eighties, like I was making fun of a friend of mine last night and she was talking about how, her period was the Knicks in the 90s. She was one of those, right? And I was like, oh my God, that sounds great. You know, here's Charles Smith missing another layup. Here's John Starks <laughs> going eight, for, you know, eight for 26. Oh, and we're going to, you know, the Knicks and the Bulls, you know, your final score. 85 Bulls, to 84. Bulls yeah. 77, Knicks 69 <laughs> in a four quarter game, right? And I told her, I said, go back and look. At the 1981-82 Denver Nuggets, Doug Moe's team, they averaged 126 a game, 126.5 a game, and gave up 126. I grew up watching Kelly Trapuca with the Pistons. I can't watch basketball now because of that. 143 to 120, whatever. Uh, do we remember Mike Norris, the great pitcher for the A's? Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. So I sent Mike Norris a text, and I said, by the way, what was Billy Martin's drink of choice? And he sent me a message. I'm not sure it varied from wine to vodka and light beer from Miller because it's less filling. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, you know, that's part of it too, is, you know, the characters in the game talking about it being a narrative. I mean, it it feels like, and if I, you know, when I was talking to my father about things in baseball, you know, you just don't have the characters um, and, and you do in basketball, just talking about basketball, you can think of the different personalities that you, you know, laugh about or whatever that, and, and, and that does go to baseball and it's uh, unwritten rules and not allowing the players to have personality for all their talk of wanting to promote individual players. It's also this notion that, I mean, this odd phenomenon in baseball where probably three of the best players of the last 30, 35, 40 years are widely hated. Yeah. A-Rod, Roger Clemens, and Barry Bonds. Well, drugs, drugs, drugs. Right. That's but, case, right? And, and, telling, and telling a story about drugs, 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 right? Yeah, and that and takes the weight. And all of that. Yeah, it and, takes and away that. the power of the game. It's also something else, which is even more, um, I don't know if it's more dangerous, because I don't think, I think drugs have destroyed the sport. I don't think baseball has ever recovered from the steroid era, um, whether we like it or not. I mean, every now and then, it reminds me of, there was one night when we were all getting bombed at the Sugar Shack in uh, Arizona, spring training, Phoenix. It was me. Wash was there. It was me, Ron Washington, Ken Maka. He was a manager. I think uh, Brian Murphy from the Examiner, he was there. And we're all going through the, the baseball record book. And it was like, you know, it was back when it was the encyclopedia, when you could actually hold it in your hand. 
And so we're looking at Babe Ruth's numbers and it's all black ink, led the league. I mean, it's just unbelievable. You look at Babe Ruth's numbers and everybody was going around, you know, and of course, who knew that we were like opening a Pandora's box because I didn't realize that one of Ken Maka's demons was that he was not a better player. I had no idea that this was going to depress the hell out of him looking at his numbers, that his name is actually, I said, Ken, there's 8,000 guys who's ever, who have ever done this in the world and you're one of them. Could you please put your chin up? We enjoy that. And every now and then it hits me. Alex Rodriguez hit 696 home runs, right? I mean, this is a staggering number of home runs. And you think about, he's not in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, we were talking the other day, like I always say, like, I always tell people like, okay, what is my, I can't decide what my favorite steroid era stat is. It's one of three and it varies depending, right? One is that, is that one, that Sammy Sosa in 1995 was a 30-30 guy. And in 2001, he was 64-0. So there's that. The other one of my favorite steroid era stats is that Sammy Sosa is the only man in the history of Major League Baseball to hit 60 home runs three times in a season. In none of those seasons did he win the home run title, which is amazing. And then, of course, I think my favorite one is that Barry Bonds, I think he hit, I think he hit his 400th and his 500th or his 500th and his 600th within a calendar year, which is, you can't do that. I mean, that's really, really hard to do. And so the game hasn't really recovered from that. And, and, and that is sort of one of the, the tough things too. And then you start thinking, like when I was thinking about doing this Ricky book, I was, you know, one of the reasons I chose Ricky, not just because he was amazing, but I'm thinking, okay, how many people in the sport now can carry a book and you don't really have to deal with drugs? How many, how many A-list guys can you really, you know, that have the, okay, you could write about Ripken, but is he really that exciting? I mean, how many guys can you really do a full-on soup-to-nuts bio and not have to wade into PEDs? But what do you do if halfway through the writing, Ricky Henderson decides to come back? He could probably get a, <laughs> get a 380 on base percentage and steal 50 bases somewhere. I saw Ricky last year, and I told him, I said, Ricky, he had just turned 61. And I said, you know, Ricky, you never retired. He goes, I still think I could help a team. He could. <laughs> now, I, 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 I was, the A's were always my second favorite Bay Area team growing up, but I would get over there to see them, you know, 10, 20 times a year. And Ricky Henderson in 1980 remains the single most exciting ball player I've ever seen. It was, and I'm not an A's fan. And it was just amazing to watch him. And just the kind of what you're talking about, the competition, the story, the athleticism, and he could do everything. Well, I think one, one of the points I was going to make, and I, we got sidetracked, was let's also not forget the technology. I don't think Ricky would steal today. I mean, the technology, the technology is so, the, the sport is now all about risk aversion, right? And so I remember talking to Ron Washington one day when you were talking to him about the characters. And this was right, what year was it when the Braves and the Cardinals had that playoff game and the, the, the game got totally messed up. The umps blew the game. I mean, they really, one of those playoff games, I think it was 2011 or 2012. One of those, one of those. It was games. the infield fly rule game. Yes, right? yes, yes. That's yeah. what it was. And I remember going to wash and we were, you know, they were talking about replay and I said, so am I going to, are we going to be waiting for you to be throwing a red flag out of the dugout now? Is that where we're going? <laughs> And so at first he started laughing. Then when they did incorporate replay, he said, well, at least now, you know, we're not going to have to go out there and kick dirt on the umpires. I said, yeah, but people sort of like that part. Right. He's like, well, at least we're going to get it right. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so the argument, so the, the manager umpire argument, that's dead. And now you start looking at the technology where, you know, you come off the bag a mill, you know, a half a millimeter off the bag in super slow-mo and now you're out. I mean, does Ricky really steal 1400 bases with that technology? No, no. He's, he's, he's probably out at least three or 4% more of the time now. I know, he's playing I mean, another sport. Just, just margin of error, right? How many times did he pop? What, whatever. So the technology is also changing how you watch the game. And I remember talking to Joe Torrey about this back when he was, you know, when he was in charge of the on-field stuff and, you know, and, and he was a beating heart guy. He was like, well, the game's got a beating heart and Bud was in the same position that, you know, at some point that human error is a part of the game, but they both had to relent. You cannot be home with a 65 inch television and super slow-mo and allow mistakes to just be part of the game. It just doesn't work that way. So some of it's not the game's fault. It's just the technology and sort of where it's going or where it's gone. Isn't it amazing with Ricky that he got so much grief for not wanting to play? And it turned out he was one of the most reluctant to let go of all time. And I think that's the real Ricky that people missed due to some of the bigotry at work when he was playing. Sounds like you're reading chapter seven right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, this book is so eagerly awaited. We're, we want to help you write it. Seriously, <laughs> can we get a preview? Are there any like really good stories that you can? Yes, I will tell you one. I don't know. I put that on Twitter, so that one I don't think that really is helpful. But the one I put on Twitter the other day was uh, June twelfth, nineteen eighty nine. Billy Bean is locker mates with Ricky. They locker is side by side in the Coliseum, and on June twelfth, eighty nine. Billy got sent down to Tacoma and he's gone. And on August 18th, he gets called back up and Ricky walks over to him and goes, where you been? <laughs> <laughs> Can you please definitively tell me if the John Olerud story is bogus? I'm pretty true. sure it's bogus. Okay. It is untrue. Thank God. Okay. Surprise there. It was yeah. too good to be true or too bad yeah. to be true. <laughs> the story that is true is that Ricky did get a $900,000 bonus check that he pinned on his wall and did not cash. <laughs> That story is true that accounting had to call him and say, Ricky, catch the fucking check. You know, they had to like call him and tell him last but not least. Yes. I will say that the book is the, it's the, my most, the, the, my favorite part of it so far is that it really is. It's a story of the great migration in a lot of ways. People always talk about Oakland being this place of all these great players, but no one ever talks about where these great players came from. And if you look at what happened to Oakland from 1940 up until about 1970, especially 1940 to 1950, it was like everybody came from Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And what's incredible is in a 20-block radius in Oakland in the 1950s and 60s, you had Huey Newton, Bill Russell, the Pointer Sisters, Paul Silas, Ricky Henderson, Lloyd Mosby, Kurt Flood, and Frank Robinson all living next to each other, which is stunning. So, so when is the book out? Uh, it should be out May of 2022, May of next year. Right, this, is why we, this is why we always say, I, mean, I, I say Oakland's the capital of Black America in a lot of ways. It has, you can make it's similar amazing. arguments that we make about Harlem, about Oakland. Absolutely. No, it's exciting. Great stuff, Howard. Thank you. Howard, thank you so much for your yeah. generosity. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. You're definitely of, uh, we're, 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 you're, you're among your people here for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're excited about, you know, whatever you do next and uh, looking forward to the Ricky book. And we really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Thank yeah. you. Well, what I'm going to do next is I'm going to go back to chapter five and then I'm going to continue prepping for tomorrow. <laughs> you don't have to prep. <laughs> it's a great book, Frank. I hope Thank you're you. really proud of it. It's a really Thank good book. You. I appreciate that. Thank you. I forgot to ask him about the uh, bonus check story. You guys have heard that one, right? He did. He, tell the he mentioned it. No, no, no. Not the, not his bonus check. Oh. The, the playoff share story, I meant. Yes, oh, no, that, I've heard that, that story too. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 tell me. I, they, vote, they vote who gets a playoff share. Yeah. Uh, and every time somebody's name came up, I, I don't know if it was with the Mets or with the A's. I think it was um, the Blue Jays. Perhaps. Or the Blue Jays, yeah. And someone names a name of all these guys who were either like trainers or, or had like two weeks with the club and everything. And Ricky keeps popping up and saying, no, nah, vote him a full share, full share, yep. full share. And everybody's like, Ricky, every time you, you give somebody a full share, that cuts our share. And he says, fuck that. This is life-changing money for these guys, full share. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it would mean to these guys to get this money? Do you know what they could do with that? Exactly. Yeah, but see, that is the kind of shit you don't really hear. No, because you know, he's portrayed um, a different way as this clownish figure, but he's a totally. decent guy. The there was another story about a year ago before the pandemic where some dude in Oakland, just a guy who lives in Oakland, I think he was uh, Latino. I'm not sure, but he lose, lost his cell phone and he's all stressed out. And somehow, like, his girlfriend gets a call. Did, did someone lose this cell phone, you know? Someone found it. And the guy's like, yeah, we're, he says, I'm in, we're in the park now. And he goes, oh, just bring it by. And it's Ricky Henderson found the dude's cell phone and, like, tracked him down. <laughs> gave it to him because, like, and the guy was like, oh, my God. Like, he knew exactly who he was. And he was, you know, I took pictures with him and everything. It's like Batman just coming into your life. And like... <laughs> but he was, to see Ricky Henderson in 1980, to go to the Coliseum. Oh, man. I, mean, I, I don't, was, it was just amazing. I mean, the whole, first yeah. of all, he would get on, it was the Billy Ball era, you know, with all that craziness. Yep. And he would get on bass and they would play that stupid song and everybody knew he was going to steal. And he always did. And he always <laughs> got on bass. And also the outfield defense, right? Because you had Henderson left and Dwayne Murphy, who was yep. kind of forgotten, That's but an amazing center defensive yeah. center fielder. Yeah. And Tony Armas, who, not, not quite, but, but had great arm out there. Yeah, and it was, and I hated those teams because I just they, the whole Billy Martin thing drove me crazy. But Henderson was extraordinary because he could do everything, everything. I just read Andrew Moranis's new book on on Glenn Burke, as I think I was telling you, Lincoln, the other day. Yes. And Mike Norris comes up in that because he was one of the guys to on the A's to mm-hmm. befriend Burke. And um, Martin, if you had a low opinion of him, you will have a even lower opinion on him of after course. that. Of course, another guy from Oakland, actually from Berkeley, right? Yeah. Yep. Another East Bay product. A lot of them. Next week, you can find us back here where we will be joined by the Reverend Arnold Townsend, lifelong baseball fan and occasional player, friend of the late Paul Blair, civil rights activist, and battler against gentrification and displacement in all of the above cases going back to the 1960s. And so we will be talking to him on the show at that time and between now and then should you find a moment to spare please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate review and subscribe tell your friends about us hang a banner out of the window anything that you can do to let people know that the show is here it is a crowded landscape and we would like people to hear about us until then it is spring go outside and enjoy the hum of the bees we will see you here next time any last words tova you're muted. <laughs> Wear a mask. You're lucky, but I was muted. No, excellent corniness portion.
You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. Life gets a lot more magical when you dream. So let's dream of a vacation unlike any other. A magical Disney cruise. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Where new stories meet tales as old as time. Enchanté, mon ami! And your family will be cared for the moment you step aboard. Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. 